Julia has uh, packages and, and uh, Bible bags and so on for the children. So if you want to go back and meet her, and then you can come down. Of course, there's toddler care downstairs for the youngest ones. But we're so glad our children are with us. I would ask that you take your Bible, turn to Matthew chapter 11, the first book of the New Testament, the writings of the disciple who was once a tax collector. Matthew chapter 11, we're going to go into the second of the 11th, uh, through the 11th verse. In our text, uh, John the Baptist is going to ask a question, and it's a question that, in fact, any thoughtful person, Christian or non-Christian, would ask. In his case, he's sitting in a very dark and dank and, and impressive prison cell. He's there unjustly, and he's beginning to be plagued with doubt. Things are coming upon him, and he's wondering what is happening to him, and is Jesus the one? And so he sends his disciples to ask Jesus the question, are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? Now John, of course, is coming from the point of belief in the Messiah that there's one who is coming from God who is going to solve all this brokenness and the problems of humanity. And so he's wondering if this lamb who came to take away the sins of the world is really the one. He's beginning to have that doubt that can overcome in the dark moments of our lives in which he's not sure exactly what to believe. And so he asked this great messianic question. But even if you were not a Jewish person or a Christian looking for the Messiah, imagine that you're a materialist and that you think this material world is all that there is and there, there's nothing more. And then you look around and you say, but this world is broken. There's no doubt about that. Peace is not our experience. Poverty, disease, war plagues humanity. So are you the one? Are you the one who can help find a solution to this difficulty of our life? Or should we wait for someone else? Perhaps you're the great scientist who will discover how to feed and to remove the poverty and the hunger of our world. Perhaps you're the great pathologist that could cure these diseases which are so plaguing us. Or perhaps you're the great economist that could, in fact, bring an end to poverty, and we could bring some kind of, of uh, uh, unified care. Or, or perhaps you're the great politician. You've got the, the great answer and the great change that is necessary. Perhaps you are the one, or should we wait for someone else? Now, that longing to find the one is what politicians often kind of tap into to say that I'm the one if you just vote for me then I'll bring about the change, and I'll make all of humanity, I'll make your life good, and I'll make it well. Now, it's not that John didn't believe that Jesus was the one. Earlier, he says it very clearly, when he sees Jesus coming, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He once believed, but now it's a little different as he sits in prison, as he's overcome by the dark, imprisoning, presence of the difficulties of life and things that overwhelm us. Prison changes a person. And it's in those dark moments of life that our doubts seem to overshadow our beliefs and they become larger 
than life. Our questions begin to consume us. It might seem out of place that the scholars who choose the lectionary and tell us which verses are best to study at what point in the year would choose this section to study at the, be at the very middle of Advent when we're waiting for the coming of Jesus Christ. Why do they focus us in on the questions of whether he is the one or should we wait for someone else? Why do they bring us to this place of doubt within our lives? Well, one of the things that we're going to see, and it's a tremendous importance for you and for me, is that the thinking person must always think. The Christian is meant to use the minds God gave us. And when those doubts come, we are to come to Jesus and ask him, are you the one? We're to bring those doubts out of the dark and into the light so that we can understand. And so today we're going to focus in on this experience and we're going to allow God to speak to our doubts, the questions we might have about this amazing one that came from the Father. So Matthew chapter 11, we're going to start with verse 2 and just go through verse 11. When John, who was in prison, heard about the deeds of the Messiah, <coughs> he sent his disciples to ask him, Are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? Jesus replied, Go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. As John's disciples were leaving, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed swayed by the wind? If not, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? No. Those who wear fine clothes are in king's palaces. Then what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. Truly I tell you, among those born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet, Whomever is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Now keep that open before you. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful that you have given us minds to think, that you allow us to understand, that you give us your presence and your activity in our lives so that we can deal with the doubts and the questions of life. I know that each one of us come with a different set and they come from different places. I would ask that your Holy Spirit would speak to every person who's here today and that in whatever ways you build their faith, their belief, and we will give you the praise. Amen. One of the interesting concepts in judicial world is that of the reasonable doubt. Now at first glance, the first time you look at that, you might think, well, that's an oxymoron. What do you mean? You have a reasonable doubt. Beyond a reasonable doubt is the phrase that they use to describe some sense of certainty that something occurred. In most of our lives, we, in fact, live with beyond a reasonable doubt. 
For example, in just the simplest things of life, you do not know for certain without any question that the earth is going to continue to revolve today and that the sun is going to set and that it will rise in the morning. Your experience has taught you that beyond any reasonable doubt, we can expect that the earth will continue to move as it has moved now for literally thousands and hundreds of thousands of years. But you don't know that for certain. You have to trust beyond a reasonable doubt that that, in fact, is going to happen. And so what we do in that instance is, in fact, we have a, a doubt, but we begin to doubt our doubt because our experience is so overwhelming that the earth is going to continue to behave that we doubt our doubt and we set it aside because beyond any reasonable doubt, we know that we're going to continue to experience this revolving earth just as it has in the past. But it's interesting to me that when we come to the question of God, that we give doubt a far greater vigor in our lives than we do the doubt about the physical world. I think the reasons are many. The presence of pain and evil, for example, are something that are so overwhelming that it can begin to overwhelm our experience of the joy and the faith that we have. You can imagine how John is feeling sitting in that dark, dank cell, unjustly placed there by a king that had committed adultery, and he had just simply said the truth about the King Herod and his sister-in-law. And if God is a God of love and a God of power, then how could a God of love and power leave him there in this cell? Doubts begin to darken our souls in those moments, especially when injustice occurs, especially when we experience things that are so overwhelming to our family, our children, our community, and they're undeserved. And they so darken our souls that we take refuge under doubt's umbrella. And we live in almost a place of oppressive doubt that overtakes our soul and our lives. But that's not the only reason we have doubt. On the other hand, John has heard all the things that are happening and perhaps he's thinking, oh, it's too good to be true. We all know that if it's too good to be true, it's too good to be true. The lame walk, the blind see, the poor are loved. To believe that God himself has come to heal the brokenness of our world and heal it in a way that, that does not take away our freedom to choose to love him or to not love him to do it in such a way that it's not so overwhelming that we become robotic in our worship and in our response to him because we have no choice. To love us in such a way that we experience his power and his presence just as a lover does another lover and knowing that they are in fact in our lives for our good and that we care for them as they care for us. Doubt can begin to overshadow our hope, and our hope can begin to feel too good to be true, and we can then convince ourselves that it's all wishful thinking. It's just a pie-in-the-sky kind of thing. And we begin to doubt the love of God. How could God love me? That's not possible. In the psychology of doubt, it's interesting 
that we take a leap of doubt far larger than we take any kind of leap of faith. We leave behind our experience, the experience of humanity for literally thousands of years, the history of God's experience with us as his people, we begin to doubt that at this moment, our doubt is larger than all of that and all that God has done in the past. And we begin to set aside our belief. We begin to convince ourselves it's a more reasonable to doubt than it is to believe in the one who has faithfully been at work. It is this trust and doubt that Antonio Machado, that great Spanish poet, expresses as he struggles the limitations of our human thought, our inability to reason our way to God. And he says, and translated, the truth is what is and does continue being the truth even though one says it is not. He also sarcastically writes, roughly translated into English, man is an absurd creature who accepts only the empty abstractions of reason and then makes the discovery that everything is nothingness. So we bring all that back and we sit beside John. We're in that dark, dank place of our soul, of his life, the prison of doubt. And we send our question to Jesus and we ask, are you the one who is to come? Or should we expect someone else? Jesus does not answer John's doubts not in some kind of logical argument as we might expect and as we often do when someone brings their doubts to us. He could have, of course, gone into this big study of the Old Testament and all the prophecies that are fulfilled thousands of years before Jesus came. We have this wonderful promise that there would be someone who would be the deliverer of the fall, and then we have this wonderful promise of the prophets and all the fulfillment that he gives. He could have gone all that, but he doesn't give John an explanation of how he was even mistaken about this victorious military messiah who was going to come in and overthrow the Romans. That, that wasn't what this was about, that it was about a suffering servant who was going to enter into our pain and our sorrow and our death and then end defeat death itself and give us the true solution that would meet the need of every human being of every political time and every persuasion of life to give us a new and eternal life through his suffering death and resurrection. Now he doesn't give any of those kinds of intellectual or historical arguments to him. No, he, he takes John to the actual experience of the people who have come to know Jesus. And he says it very directly, verse four. He says, go back and report to John what you hear and see. He's not trying to convince John with some theological argument, some truth. He says, no, go back and report what you hear and see. The blind receive sight. The lame walk. Those who have leprosy are healed. The deaf hear, the dead are raised. The good news is proclaimed to the poor, those that society has just discarded and placed on our streets. 
And then he makes one of the most interesting statements about doubt when he says, Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. There's something different about Jesus. When we begin to doubt him, we enter into a whole different kind of doubt. And we separate ourselves from the solution in a way that is different from some kind of intellectual argument. It's not a simple matter. It's not like how easy it is to actually believe the sun will rise tomorrow. We are asked to believe in the one who has come to bring healing and life and good news to even the poorest among us. We are asked to believe that the world in its brokenness now has a savior and that that savior can change the world if we will allow him to change our hearts. He can put it back together again even though it is broken and all the king's horses and all the king's men cannot do that. We are asked to have faith in the one who has been actively working in our lives. And blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of Jesus. When I first started ministry, 25, I was 25 years old. I had not experienced much of the healing power or the presence of God in the world. All I really had was my own experience and then a lot of academic training. I had gotten broken in a, a whole host of ways, in all different kinds of ways. I was blind. I was deaf. I had that leprosy insensitivity to God and to others. I was not engaged in the real relationships with God and others as I was created to be. And Jesus met me there in that place and he put me back together again and I've begun a process at that point in my life of being put back together but I had not seen how he did that in other blind people's lives or other lame people's walks or other leprous insensitive people who could literally not want to go home with their spouse and not want to be together with their parents. I had little experience of the things of how God actually did what it is Jesus promised he was going to do when he came. But I did look and see. I did watch what God did. I began to experience for myself how God works in a whole variety of lives often in situations in which I would simply say there's no hope and hope would give birth and transformation would occur in a way that was just astounding to me. I don't know exactly when and how it happened. In some ways it happened very quickly, in some ways very slowly. Sometimes it's a very simple faith and sometimes it had a great complexity to it that required me to literally spend time in prayer and study and philosophy and try to figure out how God did this and why this did and did not happen. But now 38 years later, when doubt comes into me, it is very easy for me to doubt the validity of the doubt 
and trust the faith of years of life in which God is at work and he's ministering amongst us in ways that are transforming the lives of our families and our world. And even when it seems as though God does not act in the way that my prayers or my specific understandings would require, and the lame still hobbles or the teen still dies, it is not doubt that overtakes me in that moment, but it's a deep and abiding faith that God is working still and that all things will work together in this whole that is holy. And even if my pain of the moment is not reasonable, my faith beyond any reasonable doubt has an established place, a place to live, a place to, to thrive, a place to grow as we walk together through this life. So right here in the middle of Advent, right square in the middle of Advent, when we're waiting for the coming one who's to put all things back together again, we're given the opportunity to doubt our doubts, to put faith in the one who has been active, to look and see, stop and listen, in time with our Lord. I sometimes think that the hecticness of Christmas and the materialist taking over of the Christmas event is to keep us from doing the work of Advent. We began by waiting, a whole service of silence, but there are so many ways we wait. If we're going to really experience God, we, we have to spend time in silence and listening and coming towards him and removing the things that hold us back. And we have to address the doubts that are natural in any person's spiritual walk. We have to let faith grow and our expectation grow and our awareness grow such that we know who God is and what he's doing. Now, I don't know what, what doubts you struggle with, what happens in the dark nights of the soul, in the middle of the night, when things happen. But I do know the one who wants to meet you there, in that place of doubt. And so as we spend time with God, consider this one who is leading us into all glory and all praise. Let's spend time with him.